Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. It's really interesting being back in Sydney at the moment because sometimes I, I always think of Australia as this sort of sleepy, idyllic town, uh, you know, with perfect beaches and good weather and nothing changes too much. But yet walking into this building with this hub of activity and startups, it, it actually feels more to me like 1999 than 2019. Yeah, I, look, this building is almost a miracle and I keep on sort of pinching myself when I'm <laughs> in it because I feel as though we've gotten too many things right and, and there's going to be some sort of like the 10 ton weight's going to just drop on everyone or the big Monty Python foot. I feel like we're almost like peak startup cool here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I think everyone in the building feels lucky and is also very provisional. No one knows how long it'll last. I mean, the lease is supposed to last for five years, but, you know, will the state government lose interest? It's, it's all of that stuff because in some ways we're here at the sufferance of state government, and that makes anyone in startup land very nervous because we've learned, I think, through history that politicians are fickle. <laughs> Well, you know, one of the things I've always wondered is, you know, there's talk about, you know, on-demand talent and mm. sort of flexible workforces and we'll all be freelancers in the future, mm. that these people who are essentially in startup culture today mm. are a forerunner for the future of work where actually none of us will have stable jobs and we're all sitting in co-working spaces being contracted out. Uh, I mean, do, 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 you, do you think things are kind of going to play out like that or... Well, I think the answer is yes and no, because startup culture also thrives on highly specific talent, right? Right. And so in some ways, gig culture is both about specific talent that can be freely relocatable, but it's also about generic talent that can just be plugged in when it needs to be. And so you actually have those basic tensions working here. Like everyone- <laughs> This is, is like the premise of a Cory Doctorow dystopian novel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, seriously. But the, the people who have the deep skills are being headhunted heavily and of course are being thrown huge amounts of money by a company like Google or an Amazon because they can afford to simply overwhelm other challenges. And I have people who work in, for instance, the blockchain space who have to compete with consensus because consensus was throwing money around like there was no tomorrow. They aren't anymore, but they were doing this. And so when you have people with deep skills, you do want them. You want to be able to keep them, but it gets very hard to do that. And so, yeah, we are now starting to see the birth of, uh, I guess, the next level of Davos man, right? This very sort of nomadic, highly technical culture. But in Sydney, people tend to stay in Sydney. I mean, that's, that's true in Australia. People tend to stay in the city of their birth in ways that, as an American, I find alien and vaguely <laughs> horrifying. I'm sitting uh, having a chat with Mark Pesci, uh, who is one of the... Uh, well, he's, he's, he's really one of my original futurist heroes. He was the creator of VRML at the very beginning of VR. Uh, he's authored a number of books, hosts a number of shows, and uh, is just an all-round fascinating person. Mark, good to uh, finally catch up with you after good all these years. Good to see you again, Mike, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's been almost, I, 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 we were talking about this before, it's, it's almost 25 years to the day that you brought out the first VR yeah. browser. Yeah. Uh, and in some ways... Uh, We've achieved so much of what we'd hoped for with VR, and yet in others, it just isn't part of our daily lives. No. And 
We have to sort of take a look at why that is. And the thing is, is that around three years ago, the technology had completely caught up with our capacity, right? Right. So things that cost a million or even $10 million 25 years ago cost a few thousand dollars. And some of that's Moore's Law. Some of that's smartphones because many of the sensors we use in VR were manufactured in billion unit quantities because they're being put into smartphones. Which was which was the Oculus moment, essentially. Yeah, well, actually, the, probably the Google Cardboard moment, right? right, right? right. That's the thing. So it's even slightly before that. And so we, we have this interesting sort of con confluence of the technology. So all of a sudden, VR, which was hard and expensive and ridiculous, is now easy and expensive, uh, easy and inexpensive and still ridiculous. Because it turned out that the problem was really never the technology. I mean, yeah, sure, the technology was expensive. The problem was always the fact that we don't really have a strong set of skills, educational skills, cultural skills, literacy skills around being able to project data in a rich way in three or four dimensions. The only place people see that regularly is in video games or in animated films. Right. right? And the amount of work that goes into creating an animated video game is similar to the amount of work that goes into creating an animated film. Yeah. Right? And I want to come back to that because there's an interesting parallel, I think, with, with AI because AI, like VR, kicked off with a big bang mm. of expectations and optimism. Then we went into a Two, I remember. Yeah, yeah, it happened twice, yeah. right? And in 2012, it wasn't just a case of massively cheap computation now being available you know, with, with GPUs. People also came to the realization there was a way of creating AI that didn't require you to build a model of the universe yeah. in order for it to work. You could just let it loose on data yeah. and, and it would become useful. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's the triumph of Rodney Brooks and the subsumption architecture, right? The idea that things can grow and that you can learn from that growing rather than, yes, you have to understand the universe and build a model for the universe. Is that a similar problem in VR? In, in that, you know, yes, we've got the computation bit now kind of solved and it's getting cheaper and cheaper but you know to make VR really useful you almost need to model the universe <laughs> in order to render it in an environment that would you know be interesting it's like making a Disney movie on the fly so I mean there's a couple of different ways of thinking about this yes if we ha if we talk about recreating the world in in virtual reality then you're absolutely right but if we're talking about taking just a piece of data and making that tangible, sensual, as I call it, sensual computing, then I think that there's a lot of space for it. So there was a piece that was introduced at the Sundance Festival back in 2018 called Spheres. Darren Aronofsky is the executive producer, so it got right. a little coverage for that. And it's really relatively simple in that it shows you all of the wavelengths that are around the Earth and around the universe. So it's not trying to tell you the whole story of the universe. It's just trying to give you a picture of the world, but seen through electromagnetics. Right. And it does that really well because it's giving you, so I guess, not the entire universe, but this narrow view. And it's just trying to do that. So, so it's, it's essentially a way of hacking our, you know, some of our human senses, yeah. you know, to make a new connection in, in our mind. Giving us eyes that we don't have. And I've always thought that that's kind of the, always the low-hanging fruit for VR, right? right? Is, is, this, is this like DOS prompt for VR? Well, it's, 
it's probably more like a basic window or menu, right? It's like a basic user interface affordance. And the thing that we don't have in VR is we haven't had a lot of work around building up a set of affordances. So if you think about the genesis of the desktop computer, so Windows, mouse, pointer, the WIMP interface, as we call it. So that developed in the 1970s, first at Xerox, and then in the 1980s at Apple. And an enormous amount of research work went into what's the right way to do these things? How is it comfortable? How is it repeatable? How can people remember things? Right. And we haven't done any of that hard work in VR yet. And so when you say, is this the DOS prompt? I'm like, well, it might be like the closed box on a window. It's just right. this one little thing. But you have to have everything else. We, we sort of have to come up with the, the anthropological construct uh, that simplifies it enough to be uh, useful, yeah. but also relatable. Yeah, exactly. And repeatable so that someone who's designing doesn't have to reinvent the wheel every time, but has this nice box of objects. Like when someone's writing a program for a smartphone or for a computer, they don't think about all the user interface widgets. Mm. They know that there are libraries that they access that have pre-built widgets that have been tested extensively and that people who are using an app know what those widgets are going to do and they know how to use them because they've seen these widgets before. It's a reverse problem, though, to Windows because in a way the Windows problem was how do you take the complexity of the real world and reduce it to icons mm. you know that we can now manipulate mm -hmm. as kind of a form of computational magic mm. right uh, to going the other way which is how do we take the world of abstract data yeah. and now re-render it into three dimensions but again i guess try to make that as as simplified i mean all renderings of data are simplifications right you right. you tend to not over you tend to not complexify something by rendering it and we still don't have a lot of technique around this. You know, I've been, when I occasionally teach this topic, the number of people who haven't read Edward Tufte's The uh, Visual Display of Quantitative Information, which is a foundational text in this area, and not a hard read, right? No. And quite beautiful. Yeah. And it just shows you all sorts of wonderful basic techniques and the number of people who are still blissfully. The O-rings, the, the O-ring example is fascinating in that. The O-ring the example. I mean, there are modern examples of how PowerPoint makes people dumb and all of this stuff. But, <laughs> but the basic lesson there is that there are basic things that we should be teaching as part of literacy, right? Because they're part of literacy now. They're not the same thing as numeracy or written word literacy, but they're part of visual literacy. And they need to be more pervasive in the culture. And I think until we cross that boundary, you can't see VR take off because there aren't enough literate people to either design it or to use it. But, you know, if we just sort of, if we just did a thought experiment and, and you know, if we could, uh, for, for, a, for a day, harness the world's computational yeah. capacity to create a single 25 square meter room mm -hmm. rendered in perfect resolution. Mm -hmm. So it was completely uh, indistinguishable Right. But, and inside that room, you essentially had godlike powers. Mm -hmm. You know, you could manifest anything. You mm -hmm. could essentially do anything. Yep. Sounds like Grand Theft Auto. Well, y yes and no. But I mean, the, the thing is, if you, could, if you could display any piece of information or data in the world mm -hmm. in that environment, what, what would be the way, how would that become useful? So my, my, my initial suspicion in VR, the thing that initially drew me to the field, and I think has probably kept me in the field, is this recurrent sense that 
What we don't see about the world is the data layer that under, underlies the world. And this is where we sort of cross a bridge between what we think of as virtual reality and probably more into what we would think of as augmented reality. Right. That in fact, over the last 50 years, but particularly in the last 25 years, the age of the web, we've added a data layer to almost everything in the world. And that data layer is simply not visible to us. And that if we can reveal that data layer, we actually have a way to make sense of the world. That's a kind of a data. I've thought about this too. It's a kind of a data sense, you know, the way yeah. that geese can sense the magnetic yeah. sphere of the Earth. Twenty-first century humans yeah. need to be able to sense yeah. the data that's wrapped around. And we do the them. best we can with smartphones, right? And we smart watches, right? I right. mean, uh, well, although uh, smart watches are very much around the, about the data around you, right? I mean, yeah. that's that's they're very local data as opposed to something. But, but it that's gives more you. Global. It does give you a sense. I mean, like when you get a tap on your wrist to tell you to stand up. After yeah. a while, you, you just know what that is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so when we talk about then building both devices and techniques that make the invisible visible, right, that we're actually building tools that help us think. And my feeling is that the next generation of people who are using these tools will have those tools as just a base part of their work, right? That, right. that these tools that make data visible will be seen as just natural parts of the work and, and you wouldn't be able to work well without them the same way that you wouldn't be able to work without, say, a screwdriver. Uh, to be really useful, it, it almost needs to be something that becomes a bit subliminal. Uh, in that you don't have to consciously engage with an interface all the time to get the data. Otherwise, you might as well look at a screen. Uh, um, well, I mean, do, do you think, I mean, in some ways, from that perspective, do you think auditory cues will be even more valuable than visual ones? I think it will depend on the context, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there's always a way to be able to alert people that something's up. Yeah. that's more sort of background rather than foreground. And that's the thing is that the audio sense doesn't demand focus in the same way your visual sense does. Your visual sense, both because of the amount of processing that's involved, but just because of the way we are very visually oriented creatures, right? In the same way the dog would use smell as that sort of background sense of what's actually going on here. Uh, so yes, I, I, I mean, I, I do think that we will see a lot of work in sound around that. Because that's sort of a base level. But what you're suggesting, you know, with that previous example of sort of seeing data in new ways is almost kind of synesthesia, isn't it? Like yeah. it's, it, you actually have people that can solve higher order problems by being yeah. presented it yeah. in a different way. At the Intel booth at CES this, this year, they, they're passing out magic leap glasses and I popped it on and they'd done the booth. The booth was already quite beautiful, lots of blue LEDs around and things, right? And you pop them on and they turned it into these shifting channels of data and it was all very pretty. I was like, oh, seeing the data, but it wasn't real, yeah. right? It wasn't like they were showing the actual data that was going by, which I thought would have thought was incredibly cool. This is just sort of an animation that they made up of what you could do. And I'm like, okay, this is your missed opportunity. You folks, you know, you folks are, you're Intel. You make all the data, right? Yeah. You make the bits. They could have shown CES's data in real time. Yeah. They could have done. Whether or not that was beyond the remit that they had to produce a demo is another question. But I look at this going, okay, yeah, this is pretty, but really now let's start tying it into the real. Let's start making these things visible. I always laugh when you type future into a stock photography site. Mm -hmm. I mean, the standard trope now is people with Oculus, you know, goggles on. Like yeah. it's, it's kind of, and I always think that's funny because it's like looking at people in the 60s in 3D cinemas. That yeah. We're going to look at these pictures and think they're hilarious at yeah. some point. Oh, well, I mean, I think as soon as we get to the first reasonably sort of 
schmick pair of AR goggles, right? Whether they're from Apple or from anyone else, right? <laughs> that, yeah, at that point, there's going to be kind of no going back. I mean, Magic Leap makes you look like Mole Man, but the, the folks at Magic Leap <laughs> are probably not unaware of this. They're like, yes, this is the developer version, folks. You know, we're, yeah, just, yeah. Getting, we're just getting into this. And, you know, I, I mean, I think the HoloLens has beautiful industrial design. We'll see a new version coming out in about two weeks. And we'll see apparently an even more evolved industrial design, but it still feels very industrial, right? So we need something that feels like someone, you'd want to see it on a Kardashian, right? Until something is pretty enough that a Kardashian will be photographed, will be grammed wearing it, right? Then you're not going to see any sort of crossover. It depends how long that takes. <laughs> if this is another 15 years away, I don't think I want to see it on a Kardashian either. Well, I don't. I mean, the overall sense is not that it's 15 years away. And if you take a look at the specific direction that Apple is taking with its chips, particularly with the A12X, which is the one that's in the new iPad, the iPad Pro, which is effectively faster than any chip Intel's ever made in terms of power per watt or uh, uh, cycles per watt, you can see where the curve is going. So they're probably, so I would say, within 36 months away from being technically able to put everything in, whether there's a fanny pack like there is with the Oculus or whether it's something that, oh, pardon me, with the Magic Leap or whether it's something that's sitting in the, I, I think we'll see. One of the things that, that, that's you know been bothering me about all of this is how the evolution of AR and VR mm. starts to dovetail with our own evolution as human beings mm. and, and what makes us useful or valuable in terms of our cognitive abilities. Mm-hmm. And the, the curveball that AI throws around this is that, well, it actually turns out that dealing with massive amounts of data and being able to make smart decisions around that may not actually be a human task beyond designing the model that can then do it. Um, so, you know, I'm wondering, you know, what becomes more valuable in the future? You know, a very smart machine that's able to automate decision-making at scale or a very smart human being strapped into a sophisticated you know, data sphere and be able to see patterns. I mean, who's going to be better at doing that? Like what, what, what would a human armed with VR be able to do that? A, that an algorithm. Can't? They'll both make different kinds of mistakes. Yes. Uh-huh. All right. In what way? The kinds of prejudices that a computer program has are different than the kinds of prejudices that human beings have. But they both have prejudices, and they both have blind spots. So I am drawn and always drawn back to the example of AlphaGo and what happened after AlphaGo beat the crap out of KG, the the (laughs) world's top Go player, was that it basically began an era of what they now call pair play. So you have a high Dan, so sort of a world expert Go player playing with AlphaGo as a companion against another high Dan player. Which is similar to what happened in chess. Play, yeah, you know, this, yeah. Is, this is exactly what Kasparov, in fact, inspired in chess yeah. back when uh, Deep Blue beat the pants off of him. So you have this idea of pair play now uh, because it turns out that a human and AlphaGo will overwhelm AlphaGo because of the complementary nature of their errors. Ah, well, I hadn't thought about that because AlphaGo, I could see, generates a lot of decision options. What's the error the AI tends to make in Go that a human doesn't? You know, the interesting thing is I'm not sure we can interrogate the AI to know. All right. right? But this is is part of the problem with current design in AIs is that they can make decisions 
but they cannot transparently reveal how they came to that decision because in some sense it's encoded in their structure. As, and as also, they sometimes lack context. You, you know, they've, yeah. they, they can process all of the, in, you know, the inputs and outputs, but they don't have a context for right. Right. So, so I don't solution. know that I could say that, I, but I can tell you that, that uh, in terms of just observationally, we know that humans plus AlphaGo beat the pants off of AlphaGo. Huh. That we know that there's a complementarity there that improves performance. And I think that that points the way to, you know, is it a human sitting surrounded by data or an AI thinking really hard? The answer is, it's both. Right. All right. And that the both is going to be relied upon because it outperforms either one. Yeah. A lot of these technologies we're talking about underpin the world that's coming. And, and I know you've spent a lot of time looking at this, particularly with cars lately. Yeah. What's your feeling of, of, of what 2030 the world will look like versus now? I mean, my own guess is that a lot, of, a lot of it visually will look similar. I mean, we'll still we'll be staring at some kind of screen. You know, the, the there'll be aspects of data life the same, but the underlying algorithms can only be vastly more sophisticated that drive experiences. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is, is then although we do um, have touch points that are algorithmic, they're still relatively few. All right, in terms of the total realm of experience, and it. it Part of what we'll see by 2030 is that, in fact, those algorithmic touch points will be more or less continuous, will be coterminous with experience, and that's different. Right. Okay. So it's rather than when you're touching the app on your smartphone or your Google Home or whatever, right? And because those are algorithmic touch points, or when you walk through the gate at the Opal, you know, on the train and it goes in. Those are algorithmic touch points, but they're few. And they're not linked. Yeah. Well, we, well. So there, there's some linking going on behind the scenes, but you're right. I mean, they aren't broadly linked. Um, but the thing is, I think you could still go through your day and number the other, the number the number of algorithmic touch points. Now, it changes a little bit when you're sitting, for instance, in front of a web browser, whether that's on your smartphone or whether that's on a desktop, because there's a lot of algorithmic smart points that get triggered if you load a web page because there's an ad sale going yeah. on and da 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 da. Right. So, so you, you know, but if you take that as a single event, you can just go, okay, there's one there. Um, and it can stand in for many others. But that's what I'm saying. It's like the number of touch points are still relatively numberable. By 2030, forget about it. Let me give you an analogy. So we, in October of 93, um, managed to get a Spark station because I needed that to run NCSA Mosaic. It didn't run on anything else at that point. Got it and got online and in a week surfed the web because that was possible in October of 1993. You just went through the master list of websites, right? I was done at the end of the week. And then I was able to stay current <laughs> as they kept on adding new sites until about the end of January. So about 25 years ago right now, and then the list just exploded, right? And then it was just like, ah, sorry, you're not gonna keep up here. That's kind of, I think, where we are around these algorithmic touch points. Right. It's like you can actually still kind of number them and There are so many, but I think it's already starting in the sense that core tenets of our sense of identity are being mm. shaped without us realizing it. I mean... Oh, good. that's Facebook. That's what Facebook is. That's what Facebook, Facebook does. I mean, the, the, the music we think we like, yeah. the people we're, we think we're attracted to, yeah. the books we want to read. Yeah. I mean, even where we want to go on holidays. I mean, it's Spotify, it's Tinder, it's Instagram, it's, it's TripAdvisor, Advisor, it's yeah. Expedia, yeah. Uh, it's Amazon. So already in the same way that Google's become extension of our memory, our identity is, is actually being co-opted by these quite reflexive systems. Well, co-opted is an interesting choice of words <laughs> because 
it does imply that there's a loss, that there's a complete surrender of agency. And I, I think it's much more of a negotiation. Yeah, The right. problem around that is that negotiation tends to not be transparent. And right. that does deny you agency in a negotiation. And, and you I, could potentially be nudged in ways you're not completely but that aware be, of. Because, yes, because it's not transparent. And I mm. think this is exactly where we may see the dial being somewhat more reset by 2030. You know, you do see a stronger movement now. <laughs> you think we'll go Amish a little? <laughs> well, on the algorithmic world? Well, so, I mean, there's clearly a movement to foot around establishing spaces for freedom from the algorithmic, right? There's clearly that. So you have people doing their digital Sabbaths or their unpluggings or whatever it is. And so, and, and I feel like that that's a very important part of anyone's personal practice, that you actually have to have that moment. But there's also this concept that I was talking about with uh, Doug Rushkoff in, in New York in December, where you know we really need to be able to reframe the power, the algorithmic powers as powers that we're summoning, that, that are in an earlier, in the 14th century. Computational you, demonology. Yeah. In the 14th century, you might say that something that is nudging you by getting you, you know, at one of your sensual weak points, you might call that a demon in the 14th century. <laughs> Today, we might call that Google or Facebook, but... In some ways, we need to then be able to respect those things. We need to be able to put them in their banishing pentagram and go, okay, that thing is over there. We know it's very powerful. We will use it when we need it, but the rest of the time, it's going to stay in its cage. Yeah. And we haven't done that because this is new to us and we don't have any rules around it yet. Yeah, that's a really interesting analogy. I, I was always fascinated by John Dee and you know this, exactly. this, this, this world in which science and magic and angels uh, and mathematics briefly collided yeah. where we had this sense that we could actually manipulate reality with math and symbol but reality was a little bit shadier than we yeah <laughs> yeah know, it was a, definitely much more <laughs> flexible than than how we normally interpret it today but that, that's a pattern that's repeated in history i mean you have uh, alexander graham bell thinking that the telephone's going to allow him to talk to dead people you have tesla having his visions and this idea of these it's sort of etheric communication so this is this the scene gets replayed over and over and over again in the history of technology yeah so no, that's right. Even Newton was a was kind of an occultist. Oh, you know, he was he was he was probably the greatest occultist of his era, as well as being <laughs> the greatest physicist. Yes. Yeah. The thing that um, did you read that book by Max Tegmark? You know, Life Three Point No. It was it was really interesting. And one of the things that he, you know, he talked about was this fear that with AI we end up creating a kind of a a hollow AI that we think it somehow has consciousness. Mm. And we help it replicate throughout the universe, mm. but it's really just a bare automaton that that makes us. It's just a, it's just a bunch of algorithms which trick us into thinking that it has purpose and meaning, but you know we're, we're ultimately dealing with something that, that that's that, that's empty, and that to me is is also the risk with our our own sense of identity as it starts to get shaped by algorithms. Is that you know we we, we don't actually know what's us and 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 what's augmented. Um. But you touch on points that would be, I, I guess you could think of as almost cultural touchstones that go all the way back. If you go back to uh, profoundly tribal state, so where the, a, a troop of humans is less than Dunbar's number, so less than 150 people, and that would have been the steady state before about 10,000 years ago. In a very profound sense, everyone is in everyone else's heads, right? Everyone has a mental map of everyone else. That's the deal. Yeah. And so you actually know how someone is going to think or feel or react, with very few exceptions in that. And 
the way that culture works in a troop like that is by social sanction. There are things that you simply don't do because you'd be risking profound ostracism from the tribe. And the community is transparent because you literally know everyone. You literally know everyone. Exactly. There's, there's, There's no degrees of separation. It's all of those things. And so when you talk about that, that's the... That's the um, that's the genesis social state of humanity. Yeah, that that it's much more of a colony mind. It's why we actually beat out Neanderthals essentially. I mean, that was our strength as Homo sapiens. <sighs> well, that's that argument's becoming a lot more nuanced, right? It's not really clear yet, and it's also quite clear that as Europeans, we have anywhere between five and ten percent Neanderthal DNA in us, <laughs> and that that 5 to 10% in Neanderthal DNA isn't the same in Europeans. It's actually quite widely distributed. So Europeans actually contain a huge fragment of Neanderthal DNA. But any given European contains 5 to 10% Neanderthal DNA. So apparently, it wasn't really extinction, more as emerging. Assimilation or emerging. Um, But if we talk about that initial state, and and I find this very interesting because it's clear that the idea of a social order and a social construction, and we can still find this in more antique cultures, that the ways they define themselves and individuality are quite different than the way that we do. That you know, the, the definitions you're using around individuality, while I would say I ascribe to them, are still quite frankly quite modern. And then the other question is, are we now moving into a postmodern? And if we are, are the algorithms coercing us into that? Or are they just joining us in that? And that's, I think, the question you're asking. Yeah. And I guess what you're saying is that I'm, I'm making a big assumption about what is the correct default state for humanity, like baseline human. It, it, well, there's now, I mean, this, it's always been, I mean, it's been it's an evolving, evolution. Right? Right? Yeah, yeah. It's evolving, right? So, so there's kind of algorithmic humanity, uh, which is essentially us becoming cyborgs in some sense. It, it's just a, we have to determine the, the, the cultural merit of that when we get to that point. Well, Hopefully, actually, we need to do it at every step along the way. I mean, that we're actually doing it consciously because if we're not, then we're going to run into trouble. And this is, I think, in some sense, this is where we've gotten to now because we haven't, we've developed an algorithmic culture very suddenly without any thought about it. And we had a few people going, hey, wait a minute, you know, what's going on here? But it's actually now that we can see at scale what that means, that we have the fake news culture that we do or the culture of harassment that we do, the things that can happen at scale very quickly because of this. Um, well, this brings us full circle to yeah, VR, right? Because yeah. when you're actually in a truly algorithmic society mm-hmm. where, as you say, in 2030, it's continuous to all of our experiences, the ability to be able to see that as a data layer actually just becomes more than a novelty. No, no, it becomes essential. Yeah, it's not just a CSS standard at the moment. It's actually, you can't actually navigate that world without that assistance. Well, you can, but you'd be doing it at the prey of all of the forces in that world. In other words, you would be utterly owned by the demons (laughs) rather than actually going, okay, we're going to make a deal today. This is the way this is going to work. Right. And it it is like magic because it's almost you put on your magic glasses and go, okay, let me see what's really going on here. You know, what are the forces, the algorithms, the data at work, which are shaping this experience that I'm in? And to come back to a point that you were making earlier, there's not going to be just one way of seeing that world, right? There are going to be different representations depending on our context and our task that day. Yeah, fascinating. Mark, it's been good to see you. It's been wonderful having a chat, Mike. Thank you. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, 
please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds. Thank you.